This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what is going on in the world and what you need to know to protect yourself and your family. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the plastic problem, which used to be thought of as a pollution problem, but which is now increasingly seen as a public health problem because it turns out many of the chemicals that make up plastic are toxic to humans. We'll talk with one of the world's leading experts who's sitting at the table as decisions are made that will impact the whole world. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. talked a lot on this show about how commerce, business, gets out ahead of science and how that has caused a lot of problems for people and a lot of work for lawyers and lobbyists. Think about how asbestos was touted as a miracle material until we discovered it caused mesothelioma and other respiratory diseases. Tobacco was promoted by doctors as being great for digestion, and we know how that turned out. Hormone replacement therapy was all the rage in the 80s before the drug companies admitted it not only did no good, but was actually harmful. In each case, science came marching along at its slow but methodical pace, and industries that were busy counting their profits had to stop and admit that actually they had known all along that their product or drug was dangerous, but just couldn't help themselves because they were making so much money. That's how it is with plastic. For those who've been living under a rock for the past few years, plastic is made from a simple recipe, fossil fuels plus chemicals, some of them really toxic to humans. The chemicals make plastic hard or soft, clear or translucent or colored. They help plastic cure faster or resist sticking to the molds in the manufacturing process. And some of those chemicals are known to disrupt our endocrine system, cause cancer or impact neurological function. The ultimate impact for both humans and other living things living on this planet can be the end of life. The problem is not just that we're getting killed by plastic through the waste, it's that through the process of generating plastic, we're all being contaminated with chemicals used in plastic materials, and those chemicals are hacking our hormones and contributing to disease. That's Dr. Leo Trasande, one of the nation's foremost experts on endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, and an internationally renowned leader in children's environmental health. Dr. Trasande is a professor at New York University School of Medicine and has been deeply involved in worldwide discussions about the plastic crisis and what to do about it. This is where biodiversity, climate change, and plastics all intersect. They magnify each other as threats. So what's at the core of those three angles in the triangle is fossil fuel production and consumption. Polyethylene plastic comes from ethane. You crack gas, natural gas, to make ethane. Polyvinyl chloride ultimately also comes mostly from oil. So you need fossil fuels to make plastics. And the strategy here of the fossil fuel industries is to make more plastic as a way to profit off of those feedstocks that they have in the earth that's under their control.
The whole issue of plastic pollution as a public health problem seems to have entered the public discourse very recently. Up until a few years ago, the discussion of plastic was all about waste and how to reduce that waste stream because it was essentially a garbage problem. But a combination of factors has changed the conversation about plastic. My dark perspective on this is that it really was stimulated because China decided to stop receiving plastic imports. That's how I really see what happened, because when they turned off that tap, they created a glut, and that created a problem in which the U.S. and all the high-income countries couldn't send their junk of plastic to countries that were basically taking it and saying, we'll make some money off of this bad boy. So they decided to stop the business of receiving the effluent of plastic from high-income countries. And when China did it, the high-income countries panicked. And that probably finally was the straw that broke the camel's back. And they said, we finally have to address this problem. So the problem was first conceived as a global plastic waste problem. It wasn't conceived as a human health problem. It wasn't a production problem. It was just a waste problem, which is why you saw people popularize ocean cleanup of plastic, among other things, as the solution, which, let's be honest, it's not um, in isolation, it's not a solution. It's just taking the visual problem. It's like popping a, a zit when you don't treat the infection that's underlying the problem. One of the moments that I think started to bring this to humans ultimately was through animals. So there's the famous sea turtle with the plastic straw caught. And since then, we've documented how animals have been killed by plastic waste, either getting strangulated, fish, sea life getting that way. And then most recently, there were animals who ingested plastic refuse and ultimately got their gut strangulated and killed. By plastic. Now, what is getting a lot more of the attention in the public eye is the unknown problem when it comes to plastics, and that are these microplastics and nanoplastics. The things that you can see under the microscope, that's the credit card and the pl of plastic we all eat every day that people uh, have gotten all offended about. But the plastic credit card that we consume each day is a tip of a bigger iceberg. When you talk about the real consequences for human health, when it comes to plastic. And that iceberg is all over the world and it's actually a bigger iceberg in low and middle income countries where plastic consumption is doing an exponential increase. And you know it's affecting pregnant women and children in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's not getting on the radar there as a direct problem because it's a more invisible problem. So the oil and gas industry is being squeezed from both sides. The world is finally coalescing around the idea that we need to severely cut back on the practice of burning fossil fuels for energy. The latest COP meeting actually produced an agreement among all countries to move away from fossil fuels as a source for energy. But in another treaty process, they're going to try to delay and deny progress towards combating a, another problem that's created by fossil fuels, because some of them are thinking, well, I can divert fossil fuels from burning and energy production to plastic. Some people would debate me on this and say, well, 
It's not that complicated. It's just an off-ramp. It's a byproduct of fossil fuel production and consumption. But you can see how these problems are interrelated at the very least and how some companies will salvage their profitability off of fossil fuels by making plastic. And so the incentives are malaligned, inversely aligned, I'd argue. When you need to reduce plastic consumption and production to reduce waste, to reduce human contamination, to save the proverbial planet, you have a fierce force showing up in the form of countries that are that have very strong representation and influence from these fossil fuel companies. You know who they are. You can just look at OPEC countries. Those OPEC countries are going to push very hard against a strong plastic treaty that has specific reduction requirements. The narrative about voluntary commitments that we saw was a huge problem with the COP process is showing its ugly head here again in the early processes over the first three meetings of the Global Plastics Treaty thus far. And, you know, from Uruguay all the way to Nairobi, we saw again and again hints that there would be efforts to stop the process or water down or slow down the process in every way possible and to minimize particularly the human health consequences, which are extremely compelling from these low and middle income countries where plastic is going to be increasingly produced and consumed. The plastics industry really doesn't want to talk about the health issues surrounding the production, use, and disposal of plastic. They want to frame the discussion as a waste problem, and one of the solutions to a waste problem is recycling. But, says Dr. Trisande, there are many reasons why that's not going to fix the problem. Recycling is only solving 9% of the plastic cumulatively that's been produced on the planet. And we all know that when you use recycled plastic, you're actually magnifying chemical exposures from the old plastic that got put into the recycling machinery. And then you're adding new chemicals to make the plastic suitable for recycling. Not to mention you lose a lot of plastic coming in because not a lot of plastic is usable and then you have to do things to the plastic that damage it. So you only get so much return on that investment. But then studies have documented that if you put food in plastic containers that are recycled, you actually have higher chemical exposures, including heavy metals, than food put in plastic containers that are in so-called virgin plastic, which is worse for the environment and worse for the waste problem. I'm actually not convinced that any outcome, putting it out in the environment and just throwing it away in a regular trash bin or recycling is better. What it's better for is if it reduces the use of new plastic introduction into the supply chain. But we are exponentially increasing our plastic production to begin with. And if we don't turn the tap off or down, we're gonna have a situation, no matter how much you recycle, that you're gonna have more plastic waste, more contamination in human people, in wildlife, and you're gonna have a magnified effect on climate change. There's the other little dirty secret about plastic. Microplastics actually reduce the ability of carbon dioxide 
remediation through natural sources. That is, the, the planet absorbs a certain amount of carbon dioxide and lets us off the hook a little bit. You put plastic in microenvironments and algae, kelp, things in the environment that absorb carbon dioxide and generate oxygen through photosynthesis are inhibited from doing their job. And so you're magnifying climate change indirectly by doing that. And if you're killing off wildlife to begin with, you're also undermining biodiversity, which is severely threatened right now. Working in an international forum on the issue of plastics reduction can be frustrating, not only because of the strong influence of industry lobbyists, but also because of a lack of accurate science-based information and competing national interests. And the science denialism that shows up at these meetings, I've been told to my face by country representatives with whom I've sat down with before and tried to gently educate on behalf of the Endocrine Society, which is the leading public health and medical organization supporting good science about human health and the plastic treaty. They'll say in public, there are no health effects of plastic contamination. And then you go to the low and middle income countries who have no data about their exposure where there are huge gaps of information. And they say, well, that's a high income country problem. It's not a low income country problem. And my, my economic growth is predicated on being the place where these companies set up shop in the future. The impact of plastic on the world is not limited to pollution and public health. There's also an economic impact. One of the things Dr. Leo Trasande has focused on in his career in public health has been the often unseen but very significant economic factors that should be part of our equation as we seek to limit the damage from polluting industries. When you take an IQ point from a child, maybe parents might not notice, teachers might not notice, but if 100,000 kids lose an IQ point, the entire economy notices. That's 2% of a child's lifetime economic productivity that goes away. It's $20,000 per kid. Multiply it by 4 million kids in the U.S., you quickly get to $80 billion. What we know about endocrine-disrupting chemicals used in plastics is they cost the U.S. at least $200 billion a year. It's a couple percentage points on the U.S. gross domestic product. And 2% of the gross domestic product, when we're talking about an economy that has had its ups and downs in the past few years, is a big deal. This is not small potato stuff. Add that up across the globe, and you're talking about trillions of dollars, potentially, that are the negative outflow that results from companies profiting off of the backs of people. Adam Smith would be rolling up in his grave about this because what's happening is you have companies profiting and not paying the cost of doing business properly. Because they're not paying the cost to human lives, they sell plastic more cheaply, and produce more of it than the societally optimal amount. So that's market failure, the way Adam Smith would define it. That's an economy, a global economy that is not functioning well. So from the perspective of a world negotiator on plastic pollution, what can individuals do? How can individual actions combine to drive the kind of change we need to see in the world if we expect to live healthy, productive lives? Use less plastic. It's really that simple. 
I do still talk about microwaving and machine dishwashing, plastic avoiding, not doing that, that is. Reducing your use of three, six, and seven plastics, the plastics of greatest concern. But we need to use more glass, more stainless steel. When we use a nonstick cooking plan, you're using plastic. It happens to be, by the way, a forever chemical coated plastic in most cases, uh, PFAS that are problematic for other reasons that contaminate the water supply of 100 million Americans. Plus, if we reduce our use of plastic, you start to turn the tap off. And while I understand we're turning the tap on everywhere else in the world, doing it in the US sends a big message. It sends a message to your neighbor. It sends a message to your city council leader. I understand that getting rid of plastic bags is a bit of a nuisance. It's like, it's just a drop in the proverbial bucket, but it signals the first step that there's an effort needed to solve a problem. We need to address all the sources of plastic ultimately, but we're going to have to pick our battles and build up from there. Plastics is the past. Plastics is the past. Dr. Leo Trasande, professor at New York University School of Medicine, author of the best-selling book, Sicker, Fatter, Poorer, The Urgent Threat of Hormone-Disrupting Chemicals to Our Health and Future and What We Can Do About It, and our guest today on Green Street News. We'll be right back with the week's headlines. All right, Patty, what's in the headlines this week? Okay, this first article is really interesting because there has long been a debate about whether genes or the environment are actually responsible for illnesses. So there's an epigeneticist at Washington State University by the name of Michael Skinner who says that obesity may be caused by ancestors' exposure to toxic chemicals. Ancestors' exposure? Yeah. Like long ago? Yes. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. The inheritance that Michael Skinner studies does not come from genes. Those are set in stone after birth. But epigenetics, the way those genes express themselves, do change throughout a person's life and can also be passed down through the generations. Skinner suggests that today's high rates of obesity could be linked to epigenetics rather than just diet and exercise. Unlike DNA, the body's epigenetics can change throughout a person's life, largely based on environmental factors. That's how exposure to a chemical can cause disease decades later. An environmental exposure to a chemical or some sort of trauma event can change the epigenetics in the parent, said Skinner. That will lead to an epigenetic change in the sperm or the egg, which will carry epigenetics to the next generation. Skinner first made his discovery during 2005 at his lab. He exposed rats to a chemical known to stunt the growth of a fetus and continued to see the changes induced by the chemical several generations of rats later, even though those rats had not been exposed to the chemical itself. So the rats continued to show the effects of that exposure even though they weren't exposed. It was That's their correct. generations before they and, were exposed. And maybe their parents weren't even exposed. Wow. Yeah. 
In a proof-of-concept study released in November, Skinner found an epigenetic signature correlated to obesity, meaning a doctor could theoretically test early in life whether an individual has a predisposition toward obesity. Through his and similar research, Skinner hopes medicine can move toward predicting illness rather than just reacting after the disease is already present. The results of Skinner's small study need to be confirmed in larger sample sizes, but they point to the idea there is much more going on below the surface of obesity than personal decisions such as diet and exercise. Quote, we just assume everybody that is obese is eating large amounts of food, but there are many individuals who don't do that, and yet everything they eat goes to fat and they develop obesity. Two people on the same diet, one can develop obesity and one may not, said Skinner, end quote. An early life exposure to some environmental factor or an environmental exposure in a previous generation could have a larger impact over whether someone is obese. The United States has seen a sharp uptick in obesity. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 41% of Americans were obese as of 2020, but only 30% of Americans were obese at the turn of the millennium. That's a 33% increase in the last 20 years. Wow. 33% yeah. in 20 years. Right. It's well, pretty significant. Yeah. That's well, a pretty significant jump. No yeah. question. And you can just see it. Sure. I mean, you I can just walk say. down the street or drive your car along and see people, you know, walking along who are clearly overweight. Yeah. Most people, and it, it seems. May, and it may have nothing to do with them. It may they have, have nothing to do with what they're eating. Wow. That's... Yeah. Uh, that's a revolutionary thought. And the idea that you'd be able to predict which people have that epigenetic signature is pretty remarkable. Yeah, this is, you know, they they have talked about this. Epigenetics is a really fascinating yeah. area of, of research. I, I find it yeah. just fascinating. Anyway, okay, okay moving good. on. What else you got? Okay, artificial turf fields. Oh, um, boy. This article is called Forever Fields, How Pennsylvania Became a Dumping Ground for Discarded Artificial Turf. This is from the Ooh. Philadelphia Inquirer, written by Barbara Laker and David Gambacorta. Money doesn't come easily to farmland owners in the tranquil rolling hills of Pennsylvania. So at first, Jim Halkius thought he'd hit the jackpot. A real estate broker had approached him in late 2018 and explained that a Denmark-based recycling company called Rematch wanted to pay him $4,500 a month to store more than 1,000 rolls of used, deteriorating artificial turf on 45 acres of his property. Halkius was told that Rematch intended to one day recycle the old turf. The company didn't yet have a recycling facility in the U.S., but the offer was enticing. It seemed like a great deal to me, said Halkius. But the deal soon soured. Halkius claims that Rematch stopped paying him after two years, but left hulking rows of turf stacked 10 feet high at the edge of a cornfield near a farmhouse and visible from the road. Pennsylvania's Department of Environmental Protection, DEP, received a complaint about the unsightly stacks and inspected Halkius's land. The agency categorized the old turf as solid waste that constituted a public nuisance and further determined that Rematch had violated state environmental laws by failing to obtain necessary permits for storing the turf. For years, Halkius has tried to sell his farm. He says three potential buyers lost interest because of the rolls of turf. Quote, no one will accept the property with all this stuff, which is considered to be waste by the DEP, end quote. 
There is no government agency that monitors or regulates the disposal of artificial turf, which contains toxic chemicals, including PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as forever chemicals, because they don't break down in the environment and stay in the human body for years. Scrap tires often used to cushion the fake grass cannot be dumped in landfills, yet no such regulation is on the books for rolls of turf, which, given its weight, can cost more than $20,000 per field to be discarded in landfills. Mm. The Synthetic Turf Council, a national organization that represents manufacturers, builders, and infill material suppliers, has estimated that there are as many as 13,000 artificial turf fields across the U.S., and those fields, which add up to almost 24,000 acres, need to be replaced every 8 to 10 years. We knew this was a problem years ago. We mm -hmm. talked about not only the cost of it and the toxic footprint of the chemicals that are used either to keep the, you know, to make the field and also in the crumb rubber. But then what are you going to do with it when it's, you know, when it's used? And they've never been able to address that problem. No, I hear that in, in Italy and other places in the, in the European Union, the professional soccer teams, they just roll them up and store them on the side of the fields. I mean, there really is no good place to go with them because they are toxic waste. Crazy. Yeah, and we're letting our kids play on them. You know, the whole PFAS issue you would think would make parents you know, quite concerned about this and that they wouldn't be gung-ho for installing an artificial turf field at their kid's middle school. So here's what I don't understand. We've got children's hospitals going up in every major city, gigantic buildings where kids are going, and we've got parents yelling at the, you know, at the school board, we want an artificial turf field. Nobody puts two and two together. Nobody realizes that some of those kids are going to end up in that hospital. Some of the, we've got so many toxic exposures. Here's one that we could certainly do without. We don't need to be exposing our kids to all these chemicals just so they can have a, a, a field that they can play on when it rains. No don't play when it. it rains. No question about it. I mean, if you know about this and you watch professional football and you look at those fields and you look at that crumb rubber and the dust just flying up as they plant yeah. their feet, yeah. it's you know that they're being exposed. And most professional players want grass. Sure they do. They want real grass, and they're lobbying hard, and hopefully they will, they will make it happen. And then the high school coaches and the parents of student athletes might think twice. I sure hope so. Yep, that's hopefully right. where we're going. What else you got? Okay, and this is the final one. The US EPA orders packaging firm to stop making PFAS. Here we go again. Oh this is from Chemical and Engineering News, written by Britt Erickson. Two weeks ago, the EPA ordered the packaging company Enhance to stop producing PFAS within 90 days. The agency says that nine PFAS chemicals are created by the company's fluorination process, and three of them are highly toxic. Additional testing is needed to determine whether the other six pose an unreasonable risk to human health or the environment, according to the EPA. Enhance claims in a news release responding to the EPA's order that it has modified its fluorination process over the past two years, resulting in a more than 90% decrease in PFAS impurities. But the EPA warned Enhance in 2022 that it was not in compliance with a rule under the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, requiring companies to notify the agency before they produce certain PFAS. 
Enhance says the EPA's rule does not apply to its operations because its fluorination process has been in continuous use since 1983. Uses that have been ongoing since before the EPA proposed the rule in 2015 are exempt. What? The firm says it, quote, will pursue all legal options to protect its customers, suppliers, oh, and employees please. and to ensure the continued operations of this environmentally critical technology, end quote. Of course they will. Fluorinated HDPE containers are used for storing personal care products, detergents, pesticides, and other household and industrial goods. Enhance markets its fluorination process as a way to extend the shelf life of products and prevent permeation through the packaging. Right? This is the water, oil, yeah. heat yeah. resistant, right? Yeah. The company claims the resulting containers are fully recyclable. The EPA first became aware of PFAS impurities created by Enhance's fluorination process in 2020 after PFAS tainted mosquito side contaminated a Massachusetts drinking water supply. The agency determined that PFOA had leached into the mosquito side from fluorinated HDPE containers treated by Enhance. The EPA and environmental groups filed lawsuits against Enhance in December of 2022 for its failure to notify the agency that it produces certain long-chain PFAS. The EPA considers making such PFAS, even as impurities, a significant new use under TSCA. Environmental groups involved in the case welcomed the EPA's decision to essentially ban Enhance's fluorination process. Quote, this is a huge step forward in eliminating PFAS from consumer products and a win for human health and the environment, said Kyla Bennett, Science Policy Director at oh. Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Our friend Kyla. Right. And her final comment was, EPA has known about PFAS leaching from these containers for three years, and it's a relief that they are finally taking action to halt this dangerous practice. Yeah, I was going to say the EPA is not, you know, one to take action Lightly? I mean, this must be a really serious uh, amount well, of contamination. It's, it's a, it, well, it contaminated a water supply. And it's totally understandable because everything that goes down our drains, everything that goes you know, through our sewage treatment system, right, has got some amount of PFAS just because it's so ubiquitous. It's in so many different things. It just packaging, just take packaging. It's in packaging. It's in plastics. It's in... You know, all these other things that, you know, they're really quite concerning, especially be because one of the articles that I didn't read was about, you know, the different types of cancer that PFAS can cause. And also PFAS is able to move from one part of the body to another. Mm. And so they're quite concerned about this when we're talking about cancer. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this edition of our show. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Leo Trasande, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, engineer Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>